also address the lack of validated biomarkers. And that's the second big thing uh, that we've tried to discuss here at the podcast. And I think through the work that Mazen, Nureddin, Neymar Khoury, Rode Lumba, and also Lina L have been doing around imaging biomarkers, MR, uh, the field has uh, just evolved. And we are clearly, it feels like, uh, taking big steps forward. It's interesting you should mention that because shifting away from this episode to some of the other things that we're going to be replaying for people this week, on Saturday, we're going to be looking at three conversations, three little 15, 18 minute snippets from episodes that were extremely well downloaded. The biggest one, of course, was the one with you and Stephen summarizing what you heard from Scott Friedman and Lars Johansson at the Paris Nash. But one of the other two is specifically about that. It's what was the takeaway from ASLD 2021 on the issue of the need to improve biomarkers and diagnostics in general, but really uh, non-histopathological, um, both MRE and the liquid biomarkers. And yeah, I think that's been another major theme in the, in the field over the last two years, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you just revisit the last ILC, it's not just that we're in the position to actually define those diagnostic biomarkers, but we're starting to discuss prognostic biomarkers with health that has been had, uh, received approval by the FDA in certain populations, histology at baseline, or the whole data sets that We've discussed with the work that's been done by Hannes Hackström's uh, group or recently presented by Quentin Nancy with regards to outcomes in FIP4 or high categories, the differentiation between liver outcomes and cardiovascular outcomes. That feels like light years away from what we were thinking and knowing in 2020 because we're much more focused on, on outcomes, the role of surrogates, which patient population should be included in clinical trials. You know, And if I think back up to our conversations, we had a lot of these aspects were discussed here and in Surfing Nash. And that's what I value the podcast for. It's really state-of-the-art science that's important to the field that's being recapitulated here. Yeah, I agree. And, and frankly, it's a lot of fun. When I decided to do this week's episode, I didn't realize how much fun I was going to have listening to old episodes and saying, gee, people have really you know, changed tunes and thinking about moments and papers that did that and possibly ways that the podcast helped to shape it. So on Sunday, we're going to go back into season two for one thing and then stay in season three for the other two. We're going back into season two to take a conversation from the patient-focused drug development meeting with FDA last fall. We're doing that because I think the other change we've seen in the last year has been FDA has become far more responsive to all these initiatives and ways of looking at things. If you Go back to the fourth Global Nash Congress when both FDA and EMA signaled that they might be interested in augmenting histopathology with AI, but they weren't sure how or what that meant. Somebody show us data to November, where the patients talked about what it meant not to have had a drug for a couple of years. And if I recall correctly, one of the FDA representatives, I don't remember which one, made a comment in the meeting that if they had understood then about patients what they understand now, there might have been a different result on OCA. I don't think they said on OCA, but some things might have been different, and my guess is that was about OCA. Let's transition to patient-focused drug development. Donna, it would be great if you kick us off by just talking a little bit about the history and how this meeting came to be and what you were looking to accomplish when you put it together. Your floor. Donna Cryer. Sure. Thank you. There are a couple of ways to answer that question, but the history of patient-focused drug development of these meetings in particular is still very young. This was a result of some legislation that called PDUFA 5. We're now several PDUFAs later. And so this was just created in 2012, where the first patient 
patient-focused drug development meeting. And it was an attempt to have a more organized method for patients to be able to submit testimony, comments, other information that would be included in regulatory decision-making for, for drug development. So this was a very different model than patient advocates of past eras to chain themselves of a door of NIH or FDA, sort of a brokered settlement that patient voice wasn't a trend in that the people who actually would be using the drug really should have a formal role in the process. You know, this very much went hand in hand with Congress creating statutes for FDA to be able to have patient representatives, members of the, of the public, members who had relevant lived experience with the disease to be voting members on advisory committees as well. These two developments more than really any other has driven all the other activities that we've seen, whether it's throughout pharmaceutical research, drug development, because the rubber hits the road of what FDA will and will not approve and what information they want to have as part of it. It was a huge development. So for the Global Liver Institute, created just you know a few years later in 2014, really it's just as me and some interns growing slowly. When we thought about what the needs were in the space and where my background intersected, certainly the policy arena and regulatory science was a clear need. And I've been an FDA patient representative for, for over a decade, serving on multiple advisory committees and endpoints workshops and things on risk mitigation and the like. This meeting in particular was something that I wish that we'd been able to do, which we had been a large enough organization to do two or three years ago. If we were and if we had been able to do that meeting, frankly, there would be a medication approved and on the market today. If people found value in this patient-focused drug development meeting in NASH, they really should think about the type of advocacy that we need moving forward and the investment in that advocacy because it really does support and facilitate the entire space and really is the foundation upon which investment and innovation and access rests. And if we don't have that solid foundation in advocacy, then you can invent all you want, but it really won't have meaningful impact. And so after several adverse actions, not only in Nash, but across the liver space, we entered into conversations across FDA, certainly with the hepatology and nutrition division, which frankly, as an advocate, I had been part of the movement to make sure that FDA did have this division, did have hepatologists on staff, did have an increased capacity to evaluate evaluate medications in the in the liver space. But we wanted to make sure that there was a greater appreciation than we were seeing about the seriousness and urgency of liver health, whether that was in the hepatology division, the oncology division, in cardiovascular renal, really across the agency. And I think because the Global Liver Institute really does look across liver health, across all liver diseases, we were able to see the pattern and present the pattern of adverse actions back to the agency in a way that, you know, to their credit, they had sort of an aha moment. Because you can understand in, in any large organization, you may not really know what your colleague over in another division is doing. But when we put the entire picture together and presented as liver patients, and we brought in several other organizations with us, some of whom were founded by graduates of our Advanced Advocacy Academy, like Terry is, there was an aha moment and there was a realization. And I think we started a, a much more constructive relationship from then on a series of regular conversations than the co-development of the meeting that we held last week. There are two types of meetings. There's one that FDA leads and runs 
and structures and organizes themselves, and another type because there was so much interest from the patient community in doing these types of meetings of externally led patient-focused drug development meetings. So my staff organized this meeting from soup to nuts, but stayed in regular contact and collaboration with FDA throughout. And our goal, first and foremost, was to create a platform for patient experiences that had a purpose that really addressed each and every one of the issues that we had seen in the different FDA guidances and in their adverse letters and actions, or that we had heard or experienced in conversations or in presentations that we had made that we thought patients had a different view on, or patients would have a different perspective or weigh the risks and benefits of things differently than how the agency was assuming we would. And so until they could hear directly from a diverse group of people, as much as I would like to think it's enough that I say so, really to be able to prevent a diverse group of patient experiences who could comment on issues in their own words and from their own experiences, and then to augment that with a survey to get 50, 100 patients to be able to answer a series of questions and to to give more structured and formatted data to the FDA to consider in their evaluation of trial design and and medications and therapeutics of all sorts, whether it's diagnostics or or devices. We really see NASH holistically, and we won't need them to think of it holistically, bringing in expertise in device and diagnostics in cardiovascular and renal metabolic disorders, endocrine from across the agency and as needed externally to fairly evaluate NASH. We wanted to make sure that they understood from the patient perspective how serious NASH is, the urgency of NASH, and how patients viewed particular aspects of possible medications and therapeutics in the space. At the end of this meeting, there was greater clarity around that. Okay, question I think first to Terry, who delivered several rather remarkably powerful statements, including your opening and a couple of your answers to questions. It's just, I'm an easy tell, my jaw just drops. Can you pick a, a couple of specific messages that you personally hope to be able to transmit to the agency over the course of the event? Terry Milton. Probably the key one is that if you've seen one NASH patient, you've seen one NASH patient. I mean, we may have some similarities as far as our decompensation if we've moved all the way to cirrhosis, but every patient is different and the direction they came from may be different. It's so very important to put a face to a name to be able to pull in completely be able to identify this as a person and not just a name or a number on a file. It's so easy to be separated. I told you all the other day, I'm a storyteller. In 2018, when I first met Donna, it was on a patient panel that happened right before liver meeting in San Francisco. And I had the opportunity of sitting down after this panel was through for the day and talking one-on-one with researchers from around the world. And the cool thing was, is there absolute amazement of getting to talk to a patient. And that blew my mind. They want to do good. They want to create something, but they had never really connected a patient with this disease to them. And they asked me questions like, how about your temperature? And I'm always cold. What about this? You know, nausea, what about that? And they were interested in hearing my story 
so that they could take that back to the lab and do more. They had a patient's face, a patient's voice attached to the reason why they were doing what they were doing. We had the chat feature that was part of the meeting on last Thursday. Seeing Dr. Turner say, my eyes have been opened, I'm going to do things different. That was huge when you look at that. When you look at some of the other things of, oh my gosh, you've opened my eyes. We, we could have never, we never knew. And now they do. And you can't unknow something. Terry, were there one or two specific things or Donna that they came to know that you think are particularly pivotally important? I think some of the unanimity. Each of the patient stories was very different. There were patient and caregivers. One young woman had lost her mother very precipitously to Nash. But the unanimity of the willingness to take certain risks or to experience some side effects, whether itchiness or weight gain or even increased cardiovascular risk controlled by statins, I think was surprising. Well, contrary to what they've stated was the patient preference or the risk benefit analysis that they were making in lieu of having a direct patient input. And, and so hopefully that unanimity of view from those who know how serious NASH is and can be that the value of stopping progression or certainly reversing disease was worth taking, we would, before that meeting. Stephen Louise, I don't know about you folks, I hear that comment and it kind of surprises me because you would think this agency has been through this enough times with enough different patient groups that they would start to figure it out. Louise Campbell. I think it's interesting. We say time and time again that it's about lack of progression, but the FDA always wants to reverse. And Manal's been very open about discussing that keeping a disease stable is actually a very good outcome for this. I just wonder, when I'm listening to Donna and I was listening to Terry's story and all of the patients that I've come across, and I don't know whether Stephen feels the same, is the fact that when you sit in front of a panel like the FDA, we are now in any form of cirrhosis, but particularly NASH, it is a catalogue of, and I'm going to be controversial here, system and health failures when we get to that level of disease and we didn't stop it. We didn't locate it. We didn't find it. Terry describes going to surgery and decompensating very quickly. Is there any excuse with the technologies and non-invasive methods we have today for anybody to go to surgery without knowing whether that person is cirrhotic? Because it will happen. So I just wonder when the FDA faces that challenge, whether that's part of the issue. We do not believe that our health service could be so poor at picking up diseases. So I just wonder sometimes if that we just get shocked by how did we get this far in patients' journeys. Terry described a lot of missed opportunities. That's polite. It's a big challenge for healthcare to turn around and acknowledge that when we deal with NASH cirrhosis or any form of liver cirrhosis, we've missed lots of opportunities from every specialist that's ever seen that or interacted with that person. But that's the overwhelming thinking that I've got behind this change or potential change to know that an outcome could just be, I don't want my disease to progress. I want you to keep me stable. Right. And I think that coming from the other part of the GI system with IBD before my liver transplant, I'm only alive today because I've stayed one step behind the innovation. I've now been on every class of drugs that has ever been created in IBD and hope not to need another class, but I hope that it's there when if I should need it. And often it's just been about buying me enough time until something better or more effective comes along. I look at, you know, the young woman in the infusion center getting their biologics and their 
otherwise so vibrant and so many of them are pregnant and I am so happy for them and I am grateful for the, the drugs that I had and I know that they allowed me to hang on until there was something better and so I think in, in NASH that's an important part of the patient expectations and value and evaluation of the situation too that we're not expecting a cure certainly not right off the bat from the first treatment on the market we have nothing <laughs> and we need something and then we anticipate because that's the history of, of drug development that they will continue to improve on those or there will be additional medications that address other mechanisms and aspects I think that's another area where the patient expectations of the drug process and the regulatory expectations of treatments has diverged and so I hope that's something that we have corrected and can continue to correct in conversations moving forward so that they align. About a year after I was diagnosed, I went and talked to my primary care physician. He had mentioned that he was going to be opening up a diabetic clinic as a part of their, their clinical practice. And so I went to him and I said, okay, let's talk. If you're going to open this as an opportunity, not just in managing diabetes, but in actually is going the whole process, then I'm going to challenge you is at the same time that you're doing this is to also screen for liver disease as well. Get a fiber scan, get somebody on staff that understands what's going on with the liver. Have a team of doctors that you can refer very quickly. You don't have to be the specialist on it, but you do need to know who you can send them to. Because there is a responsibility for as soon as something is seen. I know how to read my scans now. I should have never gone into surgery, honestly. And that's looking at the ones before. There were signs, and I know what those signs are now, but I didn't back then. But somebody should have caught it. Thank goodness we have International NASH Day to raise that awareness with primary care and all the other specialists. As I said in the meeting, we do want to present challenges to the agency that are within their regulatory scope. And I feel that that's outside of it. I am appreciative that they have worked with the Nimble Consortium and are, are involved in non-invasive diagnostics because that's an important part of this too, as, as we all know. I don't think that the story of NASH or story of NASH drug development can be or should be disconnected from the development of diagnostics. There are several friends of the podcast like Dr. Sanyal who have hands-on training and tours and presentations to FDA staff about non-invasive diagnostics so that they understand that better because I think that that is part and parcel of being able to understand the story of NASH and to evaluate treatments for it. It's really about understanding a host of factors, even just within the regulatory environment, to be able to put any drug development program in context. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.